Okay, we're going to now switch gears from building to other things. Uh, this morning we're going to be talking about abortion, the death of children. A pretty somber title to uh, a sermon. And I know this, and I'm glad I'm feeling bad today because this is a bad sermon to preach. And so I might as well feel bad when I'm preaching this sermon. It's not a very exciting topic. On January 22nd, 1973, when I was celebrating my 11th birthday, I was oblivious to what was going on in the world. My, the goal of my life was play basketball, watch TV, and do as little homework as possible. And little did I know that on that day in 1973, a very significant court ruling was passed, often referred to as Roe versus Wade, that legalized abortion in the United States for any reason at any time during pregnancy. Since that landmark ruling in 1973, some 50 million Americans have died from abortion. Many women have had abortions because they have been lied to, deceived into believing that pregnancy isn't about having a baby grow inside of you. It's about having some non-person entity like a benign tumor or something that can be removed or left in there. And then it only becomes a person right when it comes out. And when you consider our nation, when you consider how our nation was just stunned and shocked when 9-11 tragedies happened, the terrorist attack on the World Trade Center. And you think about that, and when only less than 3,000 people died, compare that to the fact that every day in America, 4,000 babies are killed by abortion. 24,000 a week, 109,000 a month. 1.3 million a year on the average. That's pretty gruesome. And where's the outrage? I mean, how come people are just in an outrage and, you know, putting stickers up everywhere saying, God bless America. I don't know why he would until we start blessing him by obeying his word. Why isn't our nation thrown into a hysteria? Well, unlike 9-11... And the terrorist attacks, which are very public and out in the open, abortions happen in private, away from the media and the secrecy of places that uh, the media doesn't get to. But, you know, the secrecy doesn't invalidate the truth. It's still happening. If you have been attending Calvary Bible Church for the last couple months, you know that we've been doing a series on the family. And I decided to end this series by doing two messages on abortion, one this morning and another in three weeks from today. The purpose of these messages, these last two messages, is not to attack somebody who has had an abortion or assisted in performing an abortions or actually performed abortions or um, a boyfriend who has encouraged a girlfriend to have an abortion. That's not my purpose. But what I want to do is I want to offer those people who, who have had some intimate relationship with abortion. I want to offer you forgiveness and hope and encouragement. But the primary purpose of these last two messages is to let God speak on the issue of abortion. And for this morning's message, I want to define abortion. I want to establish the fact that people are people while yet in their mother's womb. They don't just become human when they pop out. And then in three weeks, Lord willing, I want to discuss what the church can do about abortion. I mean, what can we as a church body do and what can we as individuals do? Now, I want to start by establishing some philosophical presuppositions that are at the heart of the issue. And I want to ask you this question. Who says right is right and wrong is wrong? Who determines what is right or wrong? You see, if you're going to discuss an ethical issue, you have to agree upon this. Because if you can't agree upon this, you'll never agree. Because if you have one standard and another person has another standard, you, you can never line up. So we have to ask ourselves, is science the absolute authority? And if so, what do you do about all the scientists who disagree on the same issues? 
How can that be absolute truth? You know, you can go back, for instance, another famous trial, the Scopes trial, which was used to get Christianity out of the the schools. You look at the Scopes trial, and in that trial, the evolutionists put forward a whole bunch of truths, facts, before the judge and the jury. And since that time, all of those truths, all of those facts have been rejected by evolutionists as being false. The problem is, the ruling still remains. So how can that be true? How can a true truth be an absolute truth if it's changing? We might say, well, let's look at the medical profession. The problem is, we have brilliant doctors who disagree. On pretty much every ethical issue. How do we know it's true? We could say the same thing about politics. Are we to look towards politicians to tell us what is right or wrong? That's a scary thought. Do we turn to the law system? To judges and to lawyers and let them rule and tell us what is right or wrong? Or is the right and the wrong coming from some other source. Because, you know, laws change. I mean, there was a time not too long ago in this country that if, you know, you committed an act of homosexuality or adultery, that was a heinous perversion, a crime. In Boise, where I came from, there was an old penitentiary there, and you can go there, and they had some of the original documents of reasons, you know, people were thrown into jail and were serving prison terms and you know there's so-and-so in prison four years for committing adultery things have changed now a hundred years ago was adultery absolutely wrong and today it's right how did that happen what is the truth is homosexuality a perversion a sexual perversion at one time and now it's okay you see such a statement is an oxymoron. It is a, it's a non sequitur. It is an illogical inference to say that absolute right is now absolute wrong and absolute wrong is now absolute right. So we ask ourselves, where do we look for truth? Do we, in our country, I'm sorry to say, popular opinion. That's where truth comes from. Popular opinion. Get enough people to agree that one thing's right, it's right now. It maybe used to be wrong, but now it's right. So you see, the problem here is that whether you go to science or the medical profession or politicians or judges or lawyers, you still come to the same conclusion in our society, and that is truth is relative. There are no absolute truths. The only absolute truth is the absolute truth that there aren't any, which is also illogical. And we should expect this, though, from people who don't love Jesus Christ, who don't love God, who don't love God's word and don't want to submit to God. We should expect them, as Romans says, to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, to make themselves God and determine their own right and wrong standards. And this is why the world is on the brink of chaos as we speak. I mean, right now it seems kind of stable, but in a very short order, it could just fall all apart. And why is that? Because there are no absolutes. There's no divine authority. No one's right. No one's wrong. You have your right. You, I have my right. You have your wrong. I have my wrong. And hey, that's just how it is. Listen, I like killing people. That's my right. God made me that way. I like to do it. And you can't judge me. I mean, if you don't want to kill people, fine. But don't judge me. I like to steal. I've always liked to steal. Ever since I was little, I've liked to steal. It's the way I am. It's who I am. Now, you can't judge me for the way I am. You see, this is the kind of idiotic reasoning that is driving many of the decisions made in our country. Freedom, as our Constitution gives it, is never freedom to do wrong to someone else. Now, what about the person who's being murdered? What about the person who's being robbed? I mean, don't you think we should bring them into the picture? 
Yet for Christians, this is not even an issue, is it? Now, we've got a God who reigns, who has given us his truth in his word, which is inerrant and infallible and authoritative. And so we can go to the word of God. We can find out what God says is right or wrong. And it's just over. We know let God be found true, though every man be a liar. End of discussion. Now, the world doesn't like that. But if you're a Christian, that's how you live. I say all this because this morning I'm going to be speaking from God's perspective. And, you know, if you don't love God and you don't love God's word and you don't love the things of God, you might disagree. It's like, okay, you know, you be your God and I'll let God be God. You know, you, you let the medical professions be your God or the lawyers be your God or the politicians you be God. But listen, in the church, we let God be God and we submit to God. And so this morning I want to look at what God says and I want to do three things this morning. First, I want to define what abortion is. We've all heard the term. We kind of know what it is. I want to be more explicit about what it is. Secondly, I want to survey some of the biblical arguments for the humanity and personhood of the unborn. And third, I want to examine Exodus chapter 21 verses 22 through 25 to see what implications that text has on abortion. So first, what is abortion? What is abortion? Here's kind of a Webster's Dictionary version. The deliberate premature termination of human pregnancy where a fetus is expelled from the mother's womb so that it dies. Now, that's kind of your basic definition of what abortion is. Very general still, and it's really not even working anymore, a definition like that. Just recently I read that in the Netherlands, babies are being killed after birth by lethal injection. In a few documented instances, babies have been born, then killed outside the womb before the umbilical cord is cut because it was argued, listen, the umbilical cord was still attached. You were still part of the mother, and so it's okay to kill them. They aren't people yet until the umbilical cord is cut. Now, figure that one out. And, of course, this sort of reasoning would also argue that a person on a respirator is not a person because they aren't independent of the respirator. And when it comes down to it, few people are totally independent of all other people we all depend on somebody and really when you think about it babies even after they're born and after their umbilical cord is cut they're still dependent on their mother so are they non-human until they get totally dependent whatever that means independence is not a criteria for being human that again is a non sequitur an illogical inference If what was the case, uh, if that was the case, then we could say right now that most of the people in our nursing homes and hospitals are non-human because they're depending on somebody else to care for them. Of course, reasoning like this leads to mass euthanasia. Now, I want to take some time to discuss more in more detail what abortion is. And, And I want you to know it is not my purpose to be sensational. It's going to be sensational. It's going to be graphic. But my job is not to try and shock you into some sort of, you know, reaction. My goal is to just let you know the truth. Paul said in Ephesians 5, 11 through 13, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret, but all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. And Paul does an interesting thing here because he makes two statements which kind of seem contradictory. First, he says, I want you to expose the evil deeds of darkness. And then he says, listen, some of them are so evil, don't even talk about them. Now, which ones do you talk about and which ones do you don't talk about, not talk about? Well, you don't talk about the ones which in talking about them, they might tempt others to commit those deeds. And I want you to know, abortion does not fall into that category, I guarantee you. After I tell you what abortion is, I'm sure you all be repulsed. At least you should be. So let's talk about it. What does this word abortion mean? It's not just a term. It is a term that describes a series of procedures. And here they are. Number one, suction aspiration. 
is the most common form of abortion and is used up to the 12th week of pregnancy. A strong suction tube with a knife-like end on it and which has a suction force of about 28 times stronger than your average vacuum cleaner is inserted into the mother's womb. The baby is torn to pieces by the force of the suction and its remains deposited into a container. Two, there is the dilation and curatage or evacuation method of abortion, often referred to as DNC or DNE, usually used between 12 and 20 weeks of pregnancy. A loop-shaped knife or sharp forceps are inserted into the womb. The baby is cut into pieces, drawn out through the cervix. The parts are then reassembled by a nurse to make sure the entire baby was removed so that none of the parts stay in there and cause an infection. Then there is, third, the method of saline injection or salt poisoning, which involves removing some of the amniotic fluid surrounding the baby and replacing it with a strong toxic salt solution. The baby breathes in and swallows the solution, which causes dehydration and hemorrhaging. The mother then goes into labor and delivers a dead or sometimes dying baby, which, of course, is left to die on its own and does so because of the salt poisoning and exposure. This procedure is used after 13 weeks of pregnancy. Hysterotomy is performed during the last three months of pregnancy. This is basically the same procedure as a cesarean section or, as most people know, it, a C-section, which many women have um, in order to give birth to their babies. But in this case, the baby is removed from the mother's womb, wrapped in a blanket and allowed to die by itself. Five, prostaglandin abortion is performed by injecting chemical hormones into the womb, which cause the child to be uh, delivered prematurely. Often this procedure is used in concert with saline injection so that the baby dies either in the womb or shortly after to make the procedure less distressful for the mother and the medical staff. The procedure is common in India, China, and Eastern Europe. Then there is the RU486 method or abortion pill it's used during the first two months of pregnancy a pill is taken which blocks the hormone progesterone which is essential for life for the development of the baby and maintaining pregnancy two days later two other tablets of prostaglandin are taken which causes the uterus to contract and expel the tiny embryonic baby finally partial birth abortion which has received so much political attention, especially in the last four years. Late in a woman's pregnancy, a doctor with the aid of an ultrasound scanner reaches into the womb with forceps, grabs the child's feet, pulls them out of the birth canal, leaving only the head inside the mother. The doctor then takes a pair of scissors, inserts them into the base of the baby's skull, making an opening so that suction tube can be inserted to suck out the baby's brains. The baby is then delivered dead and brainless. So when you read about abortion, when you see abortion in the paper, don't think of a word. You think of those things. Because those are the things that have killed 50 million Americans since 1973. And that is the blunt truth. In the landmark case of Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court ruled that unborn children have no rights to legal protection and that a mother can wait until the very last moment and still have an abortion. And you might wonder why a woman would even want to have an abortion. Well, pro-abortionists provide six basic categories of legitimate reasons. Let me just tell you what they are. The first is a therapeutic reason. The baby is aborted when the life of the mother is at risk. Medical doctor, former surgeon, general C. Everett Koop said, quote, protection of the life of the mother as an excuse for an abortion is a smokescreen. In my 36 years of pediatric surgery, I have never known of one instance where the child had to be aborted to save the mother's life. If towards the end of the pregnancy complications arise that threaten the mother's health, the doctor will either induce labor or perform a cesarean section. His intention is to save the life of the, of both the mother and the baby. The baby's life is never willfully destroyed because of the mother's, because the mother's life is in danger, end quote. Then there is the eugenic reason. 
Baby is aborted because doctors know or suspect that it may be retarded, deformed, or handicapped in some way. The logic is that people with handicaps should not be allowed to live. It is well documented that many instances doctors have told mothers that their babies would be born handicapped or deformed in some way. And then after the pregnancy, the baby is born perfectly healthy. As a matter of fact, after the first service, a woman came up to me and told me that that is exactly what happened to her doctor. The doctors were so sure because they gave uh, her doctor some uh, radioactive isotopes um, for a certain disease that her and then found out later she was pregnant that her baby was going to be deformed and they did tests and they told her and different doctor after doctor tried to argue that she needed to get an abortion she said no the baby has been born perfectly healthy and is now almost ready to graduate from college then there's a psychiatric reason think about this one the baby is aborted when it is determined that the birth of the baby might harm, might harm the mother's mental health. Now, do you know that you cannot predict mental health? There is no test to do that. You could just as well argue that, no, the birth of the baby is going to improve her mental health. Since there is no way to predict mental health, The whole excuse is just that, an excuse. An argument like this totally disregards the baby or the fact that there are couples all over the United States standing in line, waiting, begging to adopt a child. Four, there's the socioeconomic reason. Baby is aborted to ease economic pressure. Realize that our government is set up as a welfare state to help those who are under economic pressure. So, in fact, if you're a single woman and you have a baby... They come to your rescue big time. If you have two babies, even more. Our government helps people like that. And it can be easily argued that economic pressures are good for people, are helpful. They build character, help you appreciate what you have. I think you could go around this room, talk to some of the older people who grew up in the Depression, and ask them, did you learn anything good from the Depression? They'll tell you. I mean, I grew up in a household where my dad always told me, you know, when I was growing up in a depression. And then he'd tell me all the lessons, the good lessons that he learned. Fifth, fifth excuse is violation. Baby is aborted because the pregnancy resulted from rape or incest. Again, what is the logic behind killing a child because of what its father did? And if that's the case, why don't we go out and kill the children of criminals? Hey, their dad's a criminal. Let's kill him. Many women have given birth after rape or incest, and you would be hard-pressed to find a single one who wished her child dead. Six. Here's the, the grand excuse. On demand. What's that mean? Just what it says. You know, you don't want stretch marks. You don't want to get fat. You don't like morning sickness. You don't want your pregnancy to get in the way of your lifestyle, your career, your hobby, whatever. All a woman needs to do in our country is just want to have an abortion. She gets it. Period. And, just to rub a little salt in the wound, often at taxpayers' expense. That means we all have the privilege of knowing we're paying for abortions. And this brings us to the core of the issue. Who says, anyways, that unborn babies are people? Because if it can be established that the unborn are people, then we wouldn't just be having a bunch of medical procedures. We'd have a whole bunch of murders happening. And so let's see what the Bible says. First of all, we could go to Genesis, first chapters, chapter 1, 6, 7, which talk about, you know, People, animals, producing after their kind. You know, fish give birth to fish, puppies to puppies, birds to birds, animals to animals, people to people. You can ask any kindergartner, what's inside mommy's tummy? Oh, that's my baby brother in there. Everybody knows that. And it seems so strange to even have to argue that. Everybody knows that's a baby in there, a human baby. Come on. 
In Genesis 4.1, the word of God says, Now the man, Adam, had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And what's interesting is the Hebrew construction here, conceived and gave birth, picture that Cain is seen as Cain from conception all the way through birth. In Ruth 1.11, Naomi says to Ruth, Have I yet sons in my womb? Not fetuses. People in there that I can give them to you to marry. In Job 3.3, 3, Job, after losing his family, possessions, health, and reputation, says, Let the day perish on which I was to be born, and the night which said, A boy is conceived. A what? A boy. Boys are conceived. Girls are conceived. Not things. They're people. Later on in chapter 10, verse 18, Job cries out again, Why then have you brought me out of the womb? Would that I have died and no eye had seen me. Why did you bring me out of the womb? Who was in the womb? Job. Who was out of the womb? Job. Job was Job from conception. He didn't become Job after birth. He was Job in there. Psalm 51, 5, David says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me. And he's not talking about his mother had some immoral relationship and that's how he was conceived. What he's saying is from the very moment of conception, God saw David as a sinner, a moral, responsible being. You don't have sinning, you know, benign tumors. People sin. In Psalm 139, 13 through 16, David says to God, For you formed my inward parts, you wove me into my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderfully are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book were written all were all written in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. David saw himself as somebody in the womb being woven in the womb and then being brought forth from the womb. He wasn't David afterwards. It was him in there. Being assembled by God. God formed and knew David. And he, uh, Jeremiah talks about the same thing. In Jeremiah 1.5, God says, Before I formed you, Jeremiah, in the womb, I knew you. I knew you in there. And before you were born, I consecrated you and appointed you a prophet to the nations. Not only did God know Jeremiah and know that Jeremiah was Jeremiah in the womb, God also consecrated Jeremiah in the womb and then called him to be a prophet from the womb. Now, you don't call pieces of tissue to be prophets. You call people. In Jeremiah 20, 17 and 18, Jeremiah tries to justify his right to complain, saying, because he, God, did not kill me before birth so that my mother would have been my grave and her womb ever pregnant. Why did I ever come forth from the womb to look on trouble and sorrow so that my days have been spent in shame? It was him in there. And he says, why did I, me, my, even come out of there? Hosea 12.3, speaking of Esau and Jacob, says, In the womb he, Jacob, took his brother Esau by the heel. They were Esau and Jacob in the womb. Romans 9.11-13 also speaks of God choosing Jacob and Esau while they were in their mother's womb. Choosing them what? Choosing one to serve and one to follow, one to be blessed to be the father of the tribes of Israel and one not to be. In Luke chapter 1 verse 15, we read of John the Baptist who is filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Mary then shows up and what happens? John leaps in response to Mary's arrival because she is pregnant with the Lord. And Elizabeth says, how can the mother of my Lord? Well, the Lord is still in Mary. But he's the Lord in there. 
the person of the Lord in the womb of Mary. He doesn't become the Lord when he comes out. He's Lord in there. So those are just some of the texts. And there's a lot more. That's just a sampling for time. So we survey these texts. But if you notice something, not one of them, not one of them addressed abortion specifically. So then why did we look at them? We looked at them to establish clearly from the Bible that the scriptures teach people are people from conception, not birth. Once you establish that fact, then abortion becomes the murder of people. That's why the texts are significant. Now, some have tried to to argue from silence saying, you know, when you look at the ancient Near East and you look at some of the, the people who existed around the time of Moses, when he wrote the Old Testament law, those people did abortions. And yet God never condemns it specifically in his word. So that tells us God doesn't care about abortion. He's ambivalent to it. So how do you answer that? Well, first of all, no Israelite woman would ever dream of having an abortion. Every Israelite woman longed for the day when she might give birth to the Messiah. Children were considered a blessing of the Lord. And the more, the merrier. They were a great asset. And so no Israelite would ever want to have an abortion. So why make a law against something no Israelite woman would ever even conceive of doing? And what is interesting is when you look at the pagan nations at the time of Moses, for instance, if you look at the middle Assyrian laws discovered from that time period, it says any woman found guilty of having an abortion shall be impaled upon stakes. And if she dies in the process of trying to have an abortion, she is still to be impaled upon stakes. And in either case, she is not to be buried, but her carcass is to be left outside to rot in open shame so that everybody understands the heinousness of what she did. And those were the pagan nations. So understandably, there is a good reason there are no specific laws against abortion, because it was just unthinkable to the Jewish mind. But this brings us to our final point, and it's the text we want to look at, Exodus chapter 21. So you can turn there, Exodus 21, verses 22 to 25. And I want to look at this text because this text is hotly debated, and a lot of times it's brought up, sometimes in favor of abortion and sometimes against. And so I just want to go through it and look at it and make some comments. This week I read just tons of journal articles about it, people having all sorts of things to say about it, but um, I think you'll enjoy looking at it. First, let's read from the New American Standard Bible, which is the one I usually preach from. Then I'll read from the English Standard Version, so you kind of get two different versions, and you can see how the text is translated, especially those first two verses. The New American Standard Bible reads, If men struggle with each other and strike a woman with a child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as the judges decide. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and bruise for bruise. The English Standard Version reads, When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, woman, so that her child come out, her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him. And he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and stripe for stripe. Now, what is interesting about this text, again, is that it's used for both sides. And this is how the pro-abortionists want to use this text. And so we'll address theirs first and then explain why I don't think that's a good way to interpret it. First case they see that the text actually deals with two cases. If you look, you will see that, you know, if a men struggle with each other and strike a woman um, with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, he should surely be fine as a woman's husband, blah, blah, blah. But if there is, verse 23, if there is um, any further injury, and then it talks about, so it's actually talking about two different cases there. Okay? 
So they say in the first case, two men are fighting when a pregnant woman of one of the men tries to break up the fight is struck by the man who is not her husband so that she has a miscarriage keyword miscarriage and the baby dies for this crime. The husband demands some sort of financial compensation and then the judges decide how the man found guilty has to pay his debt. In the second case, they say, if there is injury to the mother, the NASB adds any further injury and any further is not in the original. You can just write a line through it if you have that version. If there is any injury um, to the mother, then the judges are to appoint as penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, etc., which is called in legal fields, the principle of lex talionis, which means law of retaliation. And it just so happens that our whole law system is based off of this, supposedly. Now, it's argued that since the fine for causing a miscarriage is less than the fine for harming the mother, therefore, it is reasoned that the unborn baby is non-human, not a citizen to be protected by the legal system and therefore abortion is acceptable. Yet, this argument is faulty for several reasons. First of all, this principle of lex talionis, um, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life, all of those things, is not demanding a certain higher penalty. It's not saying, for instance, the death penalty is to be instituted every time. What it is doing is it's regulating people from exacting too much revenge or demanding a payment that is higher than the crime. It is a regulating principle, but it doesn't demand any specific penalty. The principle of Lex Talionis was to prevent these, you know, people from getting really mad and saying, you know, I want all your property and all your children and, you know, no, the principle is the punishment must fit the crime. That's all it's saying. There are no degrees there except to say punishment must, must fit the crime. So it's faulty reasoning to say that the two phrases as the woman's husband may demand of him and uh, he shall pay as the judges decide found at the end of verse 22 requires a lesser penalty in kind or degree than the principle of lex talionis, life for life, tooth for tooth. Uh, you're comparing apples and oranges there. What if the husband, in verse 22, demands the death penalty? What are the judges going to do? They're going to look and say, was there a death? Yes, if there was, okay. So it's not that this is a lesser penalty and this is a greater penalty. It's that this is talking about the man demands it, but then the judges decide, and this is saying, this is the regulating principle, not only for that instance, not only for the other instance, but for every other of the eight instances in chapter 21. Because all of the case law in, in the Old Testament is all regulated off of that principle, not just the first. So we're not talking about a lesser and greater penalty here. We're talking about two separate crimes, both which require the principle of lex talionis to regulate them. Now, it may be that the husband, you know, demands the death penalty and because of, you know, his wife is injured and the child is burned and they say, sorry, we aren't, we aren't going to appoint you that. Or maybe the child dies and said, OK, life for life. The principle applies. Another important point is this. The word child used in verse 22 there is used everywhere else in the Bible to describe a human being. And so it would be very unlikely that this would be the one rare exception where it doesn't mean that. Not only that, in addition to that, it goes along with that, is Moses knew of a word that meant miscarriage. And we know that because he wrote Genesis and he used it in Genesis 31.8. And we know that because he wrote Exodus 23, verse 26, where he uses the word there. So Moses knew of a word that meant miscarriage, but he doesn't use it here when he describes what the other, the pro-abortion say, is a miscarriage. 
The phrase gives birth prematurely is literally to go out or come out, which is indicated in the footnote of the New American Standard Bible, and which is how the ESV, the English Standard Version, translates it. The text is talking about the premature delivery or birth of a human being. A woman attempts to break up a fight between her husband and another man, and another man she is struck, so she goes into premature labor, a child comes out, and maybe the child is too young to survive, it dies, Principal Lex Talionis kicks in. He demands it based off Lex Talionis. They give it to him. The guy's executed. Or, and maybe the child is too young to survive and dies, or, to, or, or old enough to survive and doesn't die, and then there's no harm to either the mother, permanent harm to the mother or the child. But yet, if you notice the text, even when it says there is no harm, the guy is still to pay a fine for the trauma and the injury and the risk associated with being struck and given birth prematurely. Now, granted, this text is debated even among those who are against abortion. So you can get people who are against abortion and read them, and there's multiple interpretations. But understand this, every way they interpret it, it doesn't support abortion. So don't let's say, well, this is disagreed. Yeah, it's all disagreed, but every conclusion says abortion's wrong. Everyone sees the two cases being presented in this text, but some say the first case is about the child, the next is about the mother. The other ones say the first case is about the mother, the next one's about the child. And some people say, no, it's talking about the mother and child in the first case and the mother and child in the second case. It's just saying right off the bat, if there is obvious injury, then There needs to be a fine, but if later complications and more injury is discovered, then, you know, you you still got to make sure the crime fits the punishment. Now, but even if you say, let's just say, let's just give them, give it to them. Let's just say this. Even if you say the text is talking about, you know, um, uh, two different degrees of punishment, even if you just give it to them and say, okay. There's two different degrees of punishment here. Well, let's just take your view. Okay. What happened is the first one's dealing with the baby. The second one's dealing with the mom. The baby's miscarried, just like you say. And in the second one, the mom is, let's say, not injured. Okay. Or injured or whatever. There's a greater fine, they say. We'll just give them that. Okay. What is the problem with that? Well, look at the near immediate context of verses 20 and 21 of Exodus 21. The near meeting context says, if a man strikes his male or female slave with a rod and he dies at his hand, he shall be punished. If, however, he survives a day or two, no vengeance shall be taken for he is his property. What this is saying is this. I'm a master. I own some slaves. Maybe we've conquered some neighboring nations. Instead of killing um, the enemies of Israel, I say, okay, listen, I'll kill you or you can be my slave. They say, okay, you're a slave. Okay, you're my slave. Well, you know what? There's still people. They come into Israel. They're under law. So they come into Israel and one day the slave disobeys. So I get my rod and I beat him so hard I kill him. I get punished for that. That's what the text says. But you know what? If I beat him and he lives for a couple days and then dies... I don't get punished. Now, notice this. Two different degrees of punishment. But does that make slaves who live two days before they die not human? Of course not. So the whole thing, even if you grant them their argument, it still doesn't work. So what have we learned this morning? First... We know that all abortion is not merely uh, the, the the terms for abortion are are not just talking about concepts. They're talking about realities, procedures used to end the life of children in the womb, sometimes outside of the womb. Secondly, we have learned that there are many texts in the Bible where God speaks of the unborn as people, as moral human beings. What this means that is that abortion is murder. What we have learned from Exodus 21, 22 through 25 does not address abortion specifically, but it does indicate that un- the unborn are people and have rights. 
The significance of Exodus 21 is that if the children are human beings, then abortion is the greatest holocaust the world has ever known. And that's what the Bible says. Not just from that text, but all those other texts we look at. Millions of people around the world are being murdered by abortion every year. And we've just been talking about the United States. But what, do you, what happens then when you have men and women carrying around this huge burden of guilt because they have, one, either had an abortion, two, assisted in abortion, three, performed abortions, four, given counsel to people who have had abortions. And these people, I want you to know, they're out there and they're, they're, they're destroyed inside. Many of them are just destroyed. They are so guilty. They are so guilty and so miserable and their guilt is just crushing in on them and they don't know what to do. Some people try to cope with their guilt by taking drugs and drinking and eating and doing all sorts of aberrant behavior. Most people try to cope with abortion in this way. They keep telling themselves that the lie is true. Those aren't people. Those aren't people. And then they aren't people. They only become people after, afterwards, after the umbilical cord. Then they become people. And why do they do that? I mean, it just seems so clear. Well, they do it to this. Because people can't live with themselves if they think, I've murdered my daughter, I've murdered my son, I've murdered my daughters or sons or somebody else's daughters or sons or helped somebody else murder their daughters or sons. They can't handle it. They can't handle the thought of being a murderer of their own children. And so they usually do something. They commit themselves to believe the lie. And then when anybody comes along and states the truth... They act very viciously. And that is why oftentimes you find these very bitter and vitriolic people who defend abortion because the only other option they see is I'm either a murderer of my own children or somebody else's or it's not true. They're not humans. And they think, so that's what I'm arguing for so I can live with myself. But there is a third option. The third option is believe the truth, stop promoting abortion, and find forgiveness, comfort, compassion, and peace in the person of Jesus Christ. That is the solution. And what we as a church need to realize is there are people out there who are hurting and all those babies who have been aborted, they're, they're gone. It's over for them. But a lot of times we tend to bypass the abortionists themselves. The women who have had abortions. A lot of times we kind of focus on saving the babies, but not the mothers, the doctors, the medical personnel, the nurses. We need to reach out with them. Because, you know, they need to know that they can have total forgiveness in Christ, that Christ died in the cross for their sins, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day, that he conquered death so that anybody who was willing to place their faith in him could receive the free gift of eternal life, could have all of their sins canceled out and washed white as snow. And that is the great message of hope. That is what every single person who is a pro-abortionist person needs to hear. There is forgiveness, there is mercy, there is comfort, there is compassion. The church will receive you, and we will love you, and so will God. And so if you're here today, and you've been involved in abortion, had one, assisted in one, performed them, encouraged some girlfriend to have one, or whatever, if you want to get over the guilt, the anguish, the terror... Just run to Jesus and he'll forgive you. You can't out sin his grace. His grace is sufficient for any sinner. And then you can be part of his church and find people who will encourage you and other women who have had abortions and found forgiveness. And they'll tell you how great it is to know a God whose grace is sufficient 
and how you can live your life and how you can be part of the solution rather than continue to promote the, the problem in order to appease your conscience. So we leave here today. I just want you to know three weeks, we're going to come back to this and we come back. We already established that abortion is wrong. The unborn are people kind of dealt with that. We're going to talk about some of the philosophical things that deal with trying to be a part of the solution. I mean, what do we do as a church? What do we do as people? I mean, how do we fix it? We just keep, you know, letting all these things happen. There are scriptures which seem to just conflict and there are some lot of hard issues and I'm just going to bring them out. I don't have the answers to everything, but I'm going to bring them out. We're going to throw them out on the table. And then all of you will at least be informed enough to decide what you're going to do before the Lord to help both those who have been lied to and those whose lives are in jeopardy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it gives us everything we need for life and godliness and addresses the issues that are facing our country and our world. Father, I know that there are women here and men here who have been involved in abortions in various ways. I pray that they would seek Christ, help them to remember that he died to save people from their sins, to forgive them, that there is forgiveness and compassion, redemption through his blood. And Father, I just pray that um, if anybody here has not committed their life to Christ, that they would do that and that you would save them and change them and give them good nights of peace and joy, even though they know that they did something that was wrong. And Father, I also pray that you would help Calvary Bible Church be part of the solution in a way that would give you glory, that we would not in our efforts to... Um, fight against abortion, Father, discredit ourselves as your disciples. Father, we pray all these things in your name. Amen.